0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context.
1: This is a great book, and it's a timely message. Remember, we talked about the pastorals. That's when the apostle is writing to an individual versus a group. He's not writing the churches in Corinth or in Galatia. He's writing to Timothy this morning he 's writing to Titus, so this little book of Titus is very simple in its purpose it 's two things: to set in an order and to appoint elders that 's what the book 's about: Set things in order and to appoint elders. A little bit about this man, Titus. He was a Gentile. He was a convert. in Galatians chapter two, verse three, we read about a little bit about his backstory. we don 't know a lot about him. He only occurs 13 times in your New Testament. And it seems as though while he traveled with Paul, he had an interesting designation. Some call him an emissary. Erasmus in the first century called him the first bishop of Crete. And there's some good reasons for that because he has a role different than an apostle. He's not Paul. He's not one of the 12, but he's been traveling involved in these churches, and he's now dispatched by Paul's authority to say, this is what I want you to do, set things in order and appoint elders for these young churches. He's called a, a brother, he's called a partner, a fellow worker, which is a lovely word Paul uses at length in chapter 16 of uh, Romans about my fellow workers, soon gone, those who were alongside me working, sweating with me. Uh, probably 63 to 68 we talked last time about Paul's uh, last letter, 2 Timothy. And we know that Nero is going to kill himself in 68 AD. So the latest that letter could have been written sometime between 64 and 67. This is in the t- same time frame. And so we know it's, it's part of his uh, last things he's going to pin to us. It's three chapters the way we call a chapter. And it's only 46 verses. So it's a very quick read. You can read this in about four minutes. Without, you know, stopping and going on some rabbit trails, let's look at verse uh, five of chapter one. This is the summary of the letter. "For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order, there's the first purpose, what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you." If you use the NIV, I like what they say here, what was left unfinished. So, the church at some level is always growing and being established and being helped along, but these are new churches, and he's saying you've got to set things in order and you have to appoint leaders. Um, so, let's look at some of Paul's practical wisdom in this very short book on how you organize a local church. And the first is appointing these elders, verses five to nine. Let me read part of verse five to seven first and make some observations, and then I'll come back and read verses eight and nine. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5, elders need to be chosen their good and godly improving character. Good and godly improving character. Appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, "...not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain." And they're going to continue, but let me comment on a few of these things. Uh, "...good, godly, proven character." That's the elder you want to appoint. Um, It's the first order of business, and it shouldn't be a surprise to us as the leadership goes, so goes the organization. It's fairly true. It's not always one-to-one because you can have a, a difficult leader and still have men and women doing well underneath and vice versa. But as a principle, if you don't have good leadership, how much more important in a local church? Good, godly, proven leaders to govern, to shepherd, to oversee this church. Um, The phrase that you're God's steward and above reproach are the two that I get the the most um, get my attention. Above reproach basically means squeaky clean. There are no perfect people. So we're not looking for a sinless man or a man who's never had any problems whatsoever. We're not going to go back in his past, his, his social media for 15 years and say oh he said something unkind. Uh, that's not the point here. The point is, is this person generally a good and godly man? Does he have a proven character? A person that's trustworthy? And these are some characteristics, and I would use that word more than qualifications. I have say this is the qualification of an elder. Well that's true in a sense, but what Paul's describing are the characteristics of the individual not just his qualifications, not like a resume. He went to school, college, MBA, he ran a business, etc. No, what's his character like? And that is really what underlines these uh, ex, uh, explanations here. Um, the steward is an important term, and we, again these Bible words, sometimes we know them so well they don't mean anything to us. Um, if you've been to a vineyard or you know, gone to Napa or whatever you, know, you might see, meet the steward. In that context that man or woman knows everything about wine, everything about the vineyard, that's their job. In antiquity a steward was a knowledgeable person but they worked for a master. They were a hireling essentially. And a steward was the one who shepherded the resources, let's use husbandry as an example, a man's a farmer, a rancher, and this is a steward over his estate he's responsible for taking care of things so that the animals produce the harvest is on time. Things are taken care of. He's entrusted. It's not his, but he's responsible for it. And so the talent uh, is a beautiful, beautiful parable Jesus gives us on the talents, the steward. Are you a good steward? We talked last week about entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Will they be good stewards when you give them this information? And I find it fascinating. He says above reproach as God's steward. You're not just working for a landowner, you're working for the Lord, and this is the Lord's church, it's His group of people, it's His body for whom He died. There are two words used in the English language, uh, Presbyterian and Episcopal. Just a quick little backstory of how we get those words. In the New Testament, those two terms, presbyteros and episkopos, are used somewhat interchangeably when Paul and the New Testament speak of elders. Go back just a little bit in your thinking, the synagogue model. All the way back to Moses' time, there were men who were over that synagogue. A certain number of men, certain qualifications, you had the Torah, then you could have a synagogue. And you couldn't have a synagogue until you had leaders who knew the word appointed to be shepherds of that synagogue. In the New Testament, when Paul, for example, comes to a city, where does he go? The first place he goes is the synagogue. And that's where he's welcome. He's a rabbi. He has that audience. And that synagogue model, in no small way, moved into the local church, which becomes the ecclesia. The difference was the synagogue was those who kind of came out of society and went together. The ecclesia are people who are called by Christ into his church. So it's a very different, as far as form... A function, but the form is very similar. So we need these leaders. This was nothing new to the Jewish mindset. Presbyteros generally meant an older person. And so when you read about you know his, his children are believing, he manages his household well in First Timothy. Some of these phrases, there's a little bit of a water under the bridge. The man's lived a while and we can look at his wife, look at his family, look at the way he conducts himself and say, hey, okay, he's he's, he's older, and a little more mature. By the way, just as a side sidebar, for those of you 30 and under, you need to exploit older men and women as your friends. I know we are a disenfranchised culture and we worship youth. You need to find some older men and women. You're parenting little toddlers, you need to talk to a mom who's got teenagers and college kids. You're thinking about the number of children, you need to talk to a mom and a dad that have four or five or six kids. You're missing gold not that you're going to do everything the way they do it and any good parent would say please don't do some of the things we did. As I've told you many times I've repented of the Lord, I will never teach a parenting conference ever again. <laughs> I won't ever touch it. But you can still learn from other people. You don't have to make this up on your own. Presbyteros was an older more mature person. The other one is, uh, is uh, Episcopos. And you hear in their scope, episkopos. scope is the word looking. And in Greek the word epi is just a preposition that means overseer. You're overlooking something. So episkopos gets glossed into bishop, the Episcopal church. Presbyteros gets glossed into the Presbyterians. And again, not to do too much history, but those two words differentiated a lot about both those denominations when they began. Because the Episcopal church had bishops. And they oversaw multiple dioceses. And they were older, more experienced. In the Presbyterian you had a session, any of you from Presbyterian backgrounds? You had a session and depending on whether they were conservative or liberal, it might have been all men, it might have been men and women, but they had a vestry and they were the men and sometimes women in those cases that led those churches. So this is where the language comes from, just as a little side sidebar. Let's continue with some of these qualifications that Paul is telling Timothy when you appoint elders what they should be like hospitable, verse 8, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. Why? So that he may be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Even for a casual reader of the Bible it's hard to miss this role and we need to talk at some juncture much more involved about this, Um, but essentially you're picking men to shepherd the flock of God and you want to have good men to do that. They need to be examples. I find it striking in 1 Timothy, and Titus, and in Peter, nothing is mentioned about education, nothing is mentioned about a pedigree or a CV, nothing is mentioned about wealth or success, Because in God's estimation those things are fine, well, and good, but what He's looking at is the character of this person that is going to shepherd His flock. If you know any of the Bible stories about how God excoriates the shepherds in the Old Testament, how they did not do what they were supposed to do, He has no kind words for them and they're going to have a heavy payment when they see Christ because they didn't shepherd His flock. The scribes and Pharisees He attacked because they ingratiated themselves on these people, especially widows and people that were, uh, that were you know, let's say underprivileged, underserved. They took advantage of them for their own benefit. That's not what a shepherd does. A shepherd cares. A shepherd cares for the sheep. And Cindy's in my uh, marriage and life 40 years we've been involved with many many churches both attending as well as part of the leadership team on occasion and elder and um, I can count and I have them listed over 100 men with whom I served over the years. And they're good godly men. About three of them stand out. Unbelievably stand out. And one of them is a retired physician. Uh, He lives in Kansas City now. He's in his 80s. And I remember asking him years ago because this church—some of you from a Brethren background, you know, the assemblies—we were involved in kind of an assemblies church, and it was elder rule. No votes. You don't get a say. There's a door if you don't like it. I kind of like that. Um, but these elders ruled the church, and you knew that when you came to attend that church. That's how it was run, and they were good men. And I remember uh, having a, a field ed. Credit in seminary where you you know you had to go do something outside of your norms. Anyway, so I went to the church and said, Can I be a field ed student for a year? And they said, Sure. And so the the elder said, Why don't you come to the elders' meetings? That was almost worth the price of seminary. As a 26 or 7-year-old young man who knew everything, to <laughs> so sit in a room of good, godly older men, many of whom had children my age and hear them deal with the underbelly of a church was unbelievable. And I remember um, as time went forward, uh, Dr. Hull, um, who still remains one of the top two or three men as an elder I've ever known, I asked him, if you could take all the qualifications, distill them down in an easy way to talk about, how would you do it? Without a moment's hesitation, he said, they need to care. Care about God's people. Care about His church. And when you read through this list, that, that, that's a really good summary. And at some point, whether you're a husband, a wife, a mom, a dad, a grandpa, a grandma, or an elder of a church, you're going to stand before Christ and account. The elder is the highest obligation on the planet, I think. Biblically speaking. There's no higher calling. Practical wisdom in how you organize a church. You want good and godly men. Secondly, They've got to deal decisively with rebellious and false teachers in verses 10-16. to I I was struck by this years ago when I read this. Even in the first century you had this problem. It will be on the planet until Christ returns. You will always have people within a church who will be disruptive, who will be false teachers. Look, he says, reproving but he doesn't say show them a door. Reproving so that they may be sound in faith. So you take them aside and say you know what, Um, we appreciate your your love and passion for X. We appreciate your love and passion for whatever. But let's get aligned with the Lord's church. Let's get aligned with what we're supposed to be doing, what it means to shepherd the flock of God. Thirdly, to encourage and instruct believers of all ages, which is the whole scope of the book. So I want you to set things in order. I want you to appoint elders. Everybody in the body's got a job to do, is what the rest of the little letter says. Everybody in the body has a job to do and that's what you're supposed to do. In three short chapters, 46 verses, that's what you got. Now what struck me this time, and I had not seen this before, I've taught Titus many, many, many years ago. If I saw it then I have forgotten. Morning by morning new verses I read. But five times in this little book of 46 verses he mentions good deeds. I'd never seen this before. I didn't even use computer software to find it. I just saw it by reading it. Wait a minute, good deeds, good deeds, good deeds. That is a a high percentage of mentions in a very short little book, right? Good deeds, good deeds. Well, let's take these very quickly um, and talk about these for just a moment. This tension of faith and works will always exist in the heart of man because I think somewhere sown into our sinful life is i got to do good. The motivation for what we do and why we do it is the hard part to diagnose, we're not just doing good to do good. We're not doing good to get favor with God. We are to please Him, which is a head scratcher. But five times He's going to talk about good deeds. You may have come from a church that talks about easy believism or cheap grace. So you say once saved, always saved, and they still live a certain way. Maybe they, they live with their their boyfriend, their girlfriend, whatever. Maybe they're licentious. Maybe their their personality or, or rather their choices in living are pretty clearly sinful but they say they're saved and so we look at those a lot of ways we say well maybe they never really got saved or maybe they're living in sin or whatever but this is we're always going to have this tension it was true in the first century and and, in 2nd Timothy 2 chapter 4 he talks about Demas having loved this present world left him and I often think about the way of Demas was the guy that was pulled away from God by the world. That happens today. So we have this tension of easy believism and cheap grace if a person's life doesn't change. The challenge is who is going to measure that change? And how much change before you say he or she is truly saved? So this this is going to churn in your life and mine all of our lives. I have friends that are bulldogmatic if you live this way you cannot be a Christian. And I understand the intellectual side of those comments I can't embrace the gracious, merciful Savior when I know my own sins, my own proclivities my own soft spots. Unless of course I'm not saved which I guess is possible. Um, But at the end of the day I want to be very careful before I say that person doesn't know Christ. Maybe they need to hear the gospel clearly, maybe they didn't embrace it right I understand all that. That's been a big part of my life, is trying to help people do you know what you know, what you know, what you know, what you know, what you know. And it's grounded on the Word of God not on my experience. You've heard that once before from me probably. Let's look at these five uses very quickly. Verses 7 and 8, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about you. Walk the talk! There's a certain political figure in the North New England part of the country right now who's under a lot of scrutiny. Because we would look at things he said, those good deeds aren't doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, a brown approach, they don't ring real well. So we, we wonder, well maybe this person isn't who he says he is. You know if you do well you admit wrong quickly, people will give you a lot, of, a lot of mercy. People give you a lot. I remember when, when uh, Nixon was going through all his shenanigans. Some of you don't even know who that is. That's okay. <laughs> and I was a kid watching this going, if Richard Milhouse Nixon would have said, I did it. I shouldn't have done it. You know what would have happened? Slap on the wrist and he had finished his presidency and it had been over. No, we have the Watergate scandal that goes on for years. And we have all these examples in culture. You know if you do the right thing the right way and go home, it's hard for people to say things about you. Secondly, chapter 2 verse 14, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. Interesting. So Paul's telling Titus part of the reason Christ died for them, part of the reason he Worked for them on the cross was so they would do righteous deeds that makes sense right That's not a hard one to figure out. Thirdly, chapter three verse one titus remind them to be subject to rulers to authorities to the, to be obedient and ready for every good deed. You have an opportunity to do it. I always find it striking when people wrestle with you know i don't know you know i don't know how to evangelize i don't know how to share my faith and I always talk about your sphere of influence. Your neighborhood, your group, your whatever news you're involved with, the traffic pattern of your life. There are people there that don't know what they don't know. And if you just have eyes to see them and love them, you're ready for every good deed. I don't know how many stories I've heard, probably like you. We had friends in Virginia. She uh, lived where we lived and they moved down to Richmond. She had a complicated uh, twins in pregnancy and she was bedridden for I think four or five months. And this group from Northern Virginia drove down two hours every weekend and brought food and cleaned and did the yard and they lived in a cul-de-sac and the neighbors were like, who are these people from Northern Virginia coming down here? And it was the open door for this couple Kyle and Kara to talk to their neighbors about, well those are our Christian friends from Northern Virginia. And that turned into an infection because they saw people that were willing to do something as simple as take a drive and take some food and care for this couple. And they continue to lead people to Christ in ways that astonish Cindy and me. Now chapter 3 verse 5 is the one where the reference of good deeds is used a little differently. It's a really important verse for understanding salvation by grace through faith, not on the basis of works chapter 3 verse 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Stop for a second. You can't be good enough to get to God. No matter how good of a person you are, what good works you do, you're never going to be good enough to get to God. He saved us not on the basis of deeds. As a, as a person raised in the Roman Catholic tradition, and your experience may be very different from mine, it was do's and don'ts my whole life. Don't do these things and when you do the things you're not supposed to do, go do some things you're supposed to do. And so we went to confession every Friday afternoon. Had to when we were younger. Got older you could skip it once in a while. You go in and you have a little booth, a little screen, bless me Father for I have sinned. It's been four weeks since my last confession. I lied, it's probably 20 weeks but I just said four weeks. And then you tell the priest your sins and he says, are you sorry for your sins? I guess. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Yes. Go say three rosaries, et et cetera. And I would go out and I would kneel down and burn through that rosary as fast as I possibly could. And I walk out of the church and I had the idea I was forgiven of my sins because I confessed them to a person and he told me to say the rosary and I walked out the door. Now I'm not trying to make fun of, or if if you're still in that, I'm not trying to make fun of that. I'm asking the question, that does not get God's favor. You can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. You can do all the wrong things for the right reasons too, right? But at the end of the day, you're not saved because of what you do. So the tension for me as a boy was, I don't know if I'm... and, And One thing the Catholics do really well is make you aware of your sin. They, uh, the nuns are skilled in guilt and shame, I am telling you. The Baptists are good with the altar call because you know, every week, uh, that's why I told you I couldn't be a Baptist, I'd have to walk the aisle every Sunday. Maybe I need to recommit one more time, I mean that's just me. The Catholic Church is more guilt and shame and that keeps you in the system and it makes sense at some level because there's this do I do not? Look what he continues to say. Let me read it again. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done righteous, righteousness but according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. You cannot be good enough to get to God. God was good enough to come to you. That is a wonderful truth. That frees you of the, what you need to do and don't do. Now, going forward as we trust Christ, yes we do. The whole book, that's why I'm talking about these five good deeds. He's talking about good deeds. I'm trying to inject in your thinking a little bit in my own too. What are you doing? And what are you calling a good deed? And do you think you're getting some merit badges for it or some promotion for it because you do good things? Let's continue to see the two other ones. Chapter 3, verse 8. It's a trustworthy statement concerning these things. And I want you to speak confidently. Stop for just a second. Paul, the elder statesman, apostle is telling Timothy be confident when you talk about this. I love that. Don't equivocate, Timothy. Be confident when you talk about these things. Here's the purpose clause. So that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Who's he talking about? The Christian. Simple enough, straightforward enough. I want you to be confident when you talk to the Christian that they need to be engaged in good deeds. He continues, these are good and profitable for men. So there are good deeds we should be about. Ephesians 2:10, perhaps the most neglected verse whenever we talk about salvation. He prepared these good works for us beforehand. So you have to look around and see what you can do. You know the amazing part of good deeds, everyone has a skill set of some kind. Maybe you're good with numbers, maybe you're good with books, maybe you're good with yards, maybe you're good with fixing things, maybe you're good with hospitality, maybe you're, you're wired to serve people. All you do is look for a place to apply that. That is really. It doesn't have to be theologically complicated. You shouldn't have to go to a class on what good deeds should I do. You see something, you should say, you know, maybe I can help there. It's not that hard. Finally, verse 14 of chapter 3, our people must also learn ongoing education, guys. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. And this is a striking passage because this passage is talking about money. You can do your homework and check me out. But that's, that's what this passage is talking about. So you know one of the things we do that's a good deed is writing a check. One is doing something to help someone. And the, the idea of a pressing need I, I, hope, I hope you're growing in your Christian faith with generosity to, to experience it's better to give than receive. If you're not there, pray that God will help you let go of some of your tight-fistedness on your money. I'm so fortunate to be married to a woman who loves to give as much as I do. And I've shared this on many occasions. When we, early in our marriage, we were in seminary, we didn't have any money at all. Uh, she was working full time, I was working part time jobs, going to seminary full time. We lived in this little tiny duplex, $350 a month in North Dallas. Uh, it was maybe seven, eight hundred square feet, one room. Uh, little, I mean, you, the kitchen was so small you had to go out to change your mind kind of thing. I mean, it was just a tiny, tiny thing. Wasn't big enough. For the, wa- the washer and dryer were outside on a covered porch that I wrapped up so we have a washer and dryer. That's how small it was. Best three and a half years of our life. So much fun. No money. Had a great time. I go to one of the elders at the church. It was kind of a brethren assembly. They weren't pastors, they were elders. And I said, I'm struggling. I mean, she's working full time. We have no debt in God's kindness. Seminary is expensive. It's all get out. Um, I feel like I should give. And he gave me an unremarkable answer. He said, quote, you're in a unique period of your life. Don't worry about it. And I went home very dissatisfied with that. And I said to Cindy, I don't know what, I mean, we can't give a lot of, we don't have a lot of money. And we came up, we didn't have a budget. We had cash envelopes in those days. If you know what a daytimer is, I'm really dating myself. We had a little daytimer box with the with the months, we put cash envelopes in that based on the Ron Blue system of those days, and uh, we came up with 50 bucks a month we gave to the church. That's hardly a tip for us in this culture, but the fun part about it was, and we learned early in marriage, we both liked to do it, and we said that's more important than rent. That was our mindset. This is more important than rent. When I got my first job after four years of college, a year of grad school, four more years of grad school, get my first job, I get paid $22,000 a year, 1985. We would buy a house when interest rates were 15.75%. We got a 11.7 fixed bond rate, unheard of at that time. We were supposed to be happy. $762 a month for our house payment on a $22,000 salary. You do the math. Cindy wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. We had no debt, but we had a 762-debt mortgage on our head. I was sweated every month. We made a decision we were going to start at 10%. And you know what? We never missed a meal. We never missed a mortgage. Sure, we drove beaters. We drove beaters. I mean, we had one car. Cindy was embarrassed when I drove it. It was, it was a piece of junk. She hated the car. She didn't like to go in it with me. And uh, you know what? It taught us a lot. We started making money, we came up with this idea we will increase our giving before our standard of living. Increase our giving before, because if you get a raise the first thing you do is go well I can do this, this, or this. And we said the first thing we're going to do is give it to the Lord because the Lord gave it to us anyway. I'm a steward not an owner. And as we fast forwarded our years in Virginia we were there and I was making a much better salary and um, we had a big fundraiser for our church and I asked people in the church who I knew were generous just to talk about why. Um, the reason Cindy's in real estate today is because of Vicki Nellis. She was our realtor. And Vicki stood, a little petite woman in this pulpit, and she told the story of how she went from 10% to 20%. And she heard a sermon on the radio when she was in her car and, and the man said, you're, you're always steward, never owner was the phrase, always steward, never owner. And she said, I'm giving God a tip. And so she called her husband back when cell phones were luxuries and said, Jim, I want to increase our giving to 20%. And he goes, well let's talk about this. (laughs) No, I want to do it. (laughs) Well let's talk about this. And that began the story and she became a person that gave 20% and more. And when Cindy heard her story we went, why aren't we doing that? And I'll I'll pause on this for just a moment. I've been criticized so many times for telling this story, I don't care. Because I learned something I want you to learn it. So we started escalating our giving and we got to 20%. And we had no debt, we had college funds for our kids, we were able to buy and go and do things, God was kind to us, we managed our money, more money is not the solution to your problems. Using the money you have is the solution to your problems, right? That's how you begin but as you build wealth and aggregate and plan for the future and plan for your children and grandchildren. So we're going along doing this little path thing and we start giving 20 and we're feeling real proud about it. And we had to kind of do some realignment. And so what we did, we started increasing that. And that's why people said, well you're bragging, you're being proud. Well you can hear me say that, I'm telling you giving to God is an investment in eternity. Not just in a nicer home or a newer car, which I, I like both. I'm not anti-possessions, anything but. But what I'm trying to explain to you is that a 10% check is easy for most of us. How many of you still tip 10%? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) We never tip just 10%. I mean, sometimes we tip 30 and 40 and 50%. Sometimes if we've heard a sad story, we tip 200%. It just depends on the day. Cindy's a much better tipper. If if she goes with you, let her tip. That's my advice. (laughs) she loves giving money away. But it's so great to be married to a person who, so I'm, I'm meddling in your marriage a bit right now, get on the same page with your giving. Get on the same page with your giving. And you will experience it is more blessed to give than receive. I can remember so many times when people gave to us when we were a young married couple and we get some money and we were just in tears. We got a couple hundred dollars in the mail. I thought, you know, I'll speak to my peer. A thousand bucks to you and me is really nothing, is it? Let me just be honest. Thousand dollars is no big deal. You could have check somebody for thousand dollars like that. Some young life kid, someone in ministry. It's his. Paul, the elder statesman apostle, is telling the young Timothy, have confidence in talking about these good deeds, Timothy. And verse fourteen, you've got to learn to engage in good deeds because we're selfish creatures by nature. So I need to be encouraged. And some people have pressing needs. During when COVID first hit and it affected people that work for us at our home, we gave them more money because we thought they're losing some work. So we gave them more money. One of them gave it back to us. She said, no, you have to take this. She wouldn't take the money. So we had to figure out a sneaky way to get it to her. Because it was an easy thing for us to do We weren't impacted like some people were, right? A generous man or woman has no pun intended, credit to be able to talk about why you're that way. The reason I want you to be generous is so you have the capital or the credit to talk about. The reason we give is because we love Christ. The reason we give is because it's His, not ours. We're just a steward of what He gives us. That's the book of Titus.
0: Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mix and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates.